house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Here's the deal. Buddy Slade and I are meant to be together, and I'm here to get him back. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's married with a kid on the way. No, kid's here. I'm cool with it. I mean, I've got baggage, too. I would keep all of this to yourself. I would I would find a therapist. <laughs> that new baby of his is just darling. Have you seen it? Up close? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that does know how to love him. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my shake-and-go clip-in, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Joe, I got us a couple of hard jacks. <laughs> I, I imagine hard jacks are an actual thing because everything else in this movie are is is a real thing. Like all the other, you know, there's it's a it's a Hampton Inn and it's a Kentucky Hut and it's a Macy's and like everything else is a real place. So I imagine hard jacks are a Minnesota thing. Minnesota uh, Gary's uh, get at us and let us know. Are hard jacks real? Listen, if. If I was ever interviewing Diablo Cody, aside from, you know, being a ball oh. of stress leading up to it, uh, I would have to ask her, are hard jacks real? I would have 8 billion questions. It seems like hard, it would be a you cider. You say hard in a beverage, and you think that it is some type of malt disgusting. Well, and jack sounds like Applejack, right? Which is sort of right. a... Yeah, so yes, that Ew, was that, that's my sense. Applejack's flavored booze? Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Ew. But I like how they talked about it. Like, like what did uh, Pat Oswalt's character uh, calls him like a... Uh, something... It makes it sound like they're like really... Have, like really will fuck you up. And I'm like hard cider like i don't know about that i've had some hard cider in my day and like i've woken up fine the next morning so i don't know about the, that. the the four loco of the cassette generation yeah hard so what is the funny thing speaking of like the the location stuff so the, this movie was mostly filmed in upstate new york it had exteriors filmed in minnesota on location um, which is, I think is mostly the stuff in Minneapolis, I imagine, where you look out like her her uh, right, uh, right. window and whatnot. Um, mostly filmed in sort of upstate New York, Westchester, kind of Hudson Valley towns or whatever. tax breaks. But We're talking one about of, Westchester and we don't have Christina Tucker. I know. Here. What? I hope we should message her after and be like, did you get like, did the arms, the hair on your arms start like, you know, raising up or something <laughs> like that? Like, did you, could you tell that we were talking about Westchester without you? Um, but the scenes at the bar, the dive bar that she goes to and she meets Pat Oswalt or whatever, are filmed in Massapequa Park. And my good friend uh, Dan lives in Massapequa Park, and we've uh, hung out there a few times, and you take the LIRR out there. And you get off of the LIRR, and it sort of, like, overlooks this little, like, strip of, like, pubs and, and bars and whatnot. And that place is, like, right there. It's, like, right off of, you can see it from the LIRR. So all of a sudden I've seen the exterior of that and I'm like, holy shit. So um <laughs> it's fun when you can like spot a an a unusual location in a movie like that. So anyway, um finally 
the day has come, Chris File. We've saved this for a while, and we I feel really like have. in planning it, we were like, well, let's just do it now. You know, we could have saved this for a more momentous we occasion, but it kind of just ended up happening. Maybe this... because I, I've partly been like, I need to rewatch this movie. I'm holding out a rewatch for us to do it, and yeah. we're talking about one of my favorite movies. I haven't seen this movie, it turns out, in quite a while, and I... I think I reacted to it a little bit differently, maybe this time, than I did previously, or reacted to the Mavis character a little bit differently, just in the fact that, and maybe it's one of those things where, like, in your memory, the heart grows fonder and whatever, and, like, it's such a great performance that you maybe, in your memory, are like, I love that character. And now I'm watching it, and it's just like, oh my god, she's, like, the most heinous person ever. There really is no redeeming qualities to this woman, and that's one of the charms of the movie. See, I also feel like, because this movie is now approaching 15 years old. Fuck you. First of all, get the fuck out of here. Go away. <laughs> Go no, away. It's, it's just over a decade. But it's 12 I years think old. Yeah. as I am approaching Mavis's age, slash may- maybe actually Mavis's age, I also have had She's an 37. This character, too, where it's like, I feel less removed from it because, like, uh-huh. I am the age of these characters now, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and, like, There's... it doesn't feel like, you know, a character study and more as, like, real life. I realize Minnesota isn't exactly the Midwest. What do we consider Minnesota? Minnesota's the Midwest. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie is a part of, like... Midwestern despair cinema, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a way that I'm like, yep, this is what it's like here. This yeah. is this is this is it, and it it. I, I mean, I wouldn't say skewers, but like, it is a very Midwestern satire, and there are things that like, yeah, I I mean, I would say that this movie is so well observed that I think when people bristle at Mavis, especially in the first reaction to this movie and the way that people were so adamant that this is just such a mean nasty movie yeah i think people (laughs) that keep this movie at an arm's length see things in mavis that they have in themselves that they don't like and they don't want to see and they certainly don't want to see in anything other than this is a monster and while mavis is monstrous in this movie I don't think that this movie views her as a monster, and I think that allows the movie to be better, funnier, and smarter. I think this movie views Mavis a little bit as a tragedy, and and but I don't think this movie shies away from showing her monstrousness, like no, in the slightest. No, but I don't think she. It thinks she is a monster. Sure. Uh, it's interesting. The way that, like, we'll we'll get into, as we've gotten into before, the uh, Jason Reitman Diablo Cody uh, partnership uh, throughout this episode. And I do think that there's a reason why his best movies are the ones that she's written. Yeah. And I think it's because he is very good at basically yes-anding, to, you know, use a common phrase. Yeah what she is already providing on the page. He mm-hmm. has talked a lot about how when presented with this script, he was like, oh, this is a movie about an alcoholic. Yeah. And I'm going to run with that. And I think because it takes that perspective on Mavis 
and the way she behaves, Mm -hmm. I think there is a note to this movie that it's like, but she can change. She can get it together. She's just on the path. She chooses not to. Yeah. Rock bottom. And she's not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, As somebody also who, and I think like Mavis is the most extreme version of basically anything, any trait you can think of in a lot of ways, but as somebody who sort of moved away from my hometown and moved to New York city and, had that experience of like coming back and being like, I feel foreign in this place now. Mm-hmm. And, and like Mavis is like all the way to like an 11 of like disdain for her hometown. And I don't think I've ever really felt that, but there are feelings of like, what is this place? Do I really, you know, do I like everything about this place? Do I, do I feel I don't fit in here anymore, and why don't I fit in here anymore? Am I have I outgrown this this place and all these sort of feelings? And you do see, like as you mentioned, like there is a reflection of these real emotions in there. And mm-hmm. while also feeling at the same time, because she right, she hates this place, but she also is stuck in this sense of reliving her glory days, right? She is the mm-hmm. classic, you know, proverbial peaked in high school girl right but she didn't necessarily peak but she thinks she she left and did have her own life she certainly is at a moment where she thinks she did she thinks she was the hottest fucking shit in high school and in many ways in which like high school you know uh, currency is measured she was Mm -hmm. right but now she comes back and all the people she was mean to hate her and all the sort of you know things that she thought was cool going back behind the high school and like drinking and behaving badly and being you know feeling up on her ex and whatnot all of those things now from an adult perspective are seen as pathetic and also monstrous and Mm -hmm. and she can't seem to realize that like i don't think she ever quite until the very end realizes just how like it's one of those things where like if you could just look at yourself you would see this is like awful behavior and she just we can't talk about the ending of this movie until we're on the other side of the 60 second plot description the 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 the, like that scene of the movie is part of the reason why this movie is as good as it is um But, I mean, I also think that the movie gives Mavis legitimate reasons to hate her hometown and hate that life. Like, that scene with her parent, the, like, kind of lunch table scene with her parents, like, really hit me kind of hard this time of, like, oh, her parents are kind of awful to her. Oh, you don't end up that way unless there's some sort of, yeah. yeah, Exactly. And, like, you probably uh, not... Not to, like, armchair psychologist, but, like, you yeah. don't uh, get some type of appeal to being a writer, mm-hmm. you know, an mm-hmm. observer an observer through literature right. uh, without having some interesting uh, character dynamics uh, yeah. surrounding you that you observe and affect you. What I find so fascinating, and it, 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 it's not a plot hole, it's not a whatever, I... I sometimes struggle to connect the dot of how Mavis ended up becoming a writer. 
like, did she take English classes in college? Like, did she take, like, was she at all a serious student in college? Was she's she... so incredibly smart, though, and sensitive. But I she's think. not particularly, she doesn't ever seem like somebody who would have wanted to be a creative, right? She probably, you know, a theater fag is just a term, right? Like, that's the line <laughs> in the movie. Like, she, I, I, I wonder what was the thing that sort of actually made her put pen to paper and, like, write something fictional. Because that is a leap for a lot of people who don't want to put themselves out there because their their vision of popularity is incumbent on being too cool for shit like that, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think that's something as you're getting older. We don't really know much about Mavis in terms of like a college career. Right. It's hard to that. it's hard to see but, I think it's part of the character. It's hard to see the life that existed between leaving Mercury and returning to Mercury. Right, right. You know? Um, I mean, maybe I can kind of draw the lines and maybe it's me, you know, uh, extrapolating onto her, but I can see that type of person. I think this person exists in the world that sure. isn't initially drawn to creative things in their youth, yeah. but they, through whatever weird means as they, you know, enter actual young adulthood you know, right. find things that work for them as a path. Right. And I think that's something that's true for Mavis is like, she did have, she did develop this life where she, you know, had this career ghostwriting these books right. and got married. And in the recent, you know, years of her life, this book series she writes for loses its popularity. Her mm-hmm. marriage ends and she has to figure out something new and maybe she wouldn't have, you know, right. She, she's not resilient in that way. She doesn't know how to, uh, yeah. Find the next thing. Yeah. Maybe I am also psychoanalyzing <laughs> myself. There are maybe, just maybe there are invitations in this movie to find yourself in different, especially Mavis, but also in like Matthew and like different characters in this movie that will will make your blood run momentarily cold. And I um, mean, not just those. I mean, this is why Diablo Cody is such a good writer, yeah. and why yeah. Jason Reitman is great at bringing those things to the screen. I see myself at a lot of those people yeah like even uh elizabeth razor's friend who pull, tries to pull the knife on mavis and is fully unequipped to you yeah. know deal with mavis's knife back when she's like it's so interesting to see you hanging around here where it's like okay you're gonna yeah. grab this low hanging no low hanging fruit and mavis just like bats off this yeah. similarly shady thing that's so much easier for her to do. Well, and she gets, she like, has... she cuts to the jugular, right? She's like, oh, it's right. so nice that a single mom is in a band. And, um... <laughs> well, and, like, I can see myself in that character that it's like, I know how to handle this situation and being completely you know, the f- kneecapped immediately. The first time um, I saw this movie, I was fully on Mavis' side being like, fuck those bitches, you know, whatever. And then watching <laughs> it this time, I'm like, I want to, like, fly on the wall for the rest of their evening and watch the three of those women just, like, tear the fuck out of Mavis and, like, mm-hmm. run her up and down the wall. And just because, like, watching, I don't know, I'm much, much, much less sympathetic to Mavis. And I don't mm-hmm. think I'm supposed to be fully sympathetic for her but like watching her in that bar i'm like this bitch like just every the the way she like and this is why it's a great performance by Charlize theron right where 
the scene in the bar where the band starts playing and she's standing next to Buddy, but her back, she's leaning against the bar in the way that her back is to the stage and like she sort of like over her shoulder looks when mm-hmm. she's looking at the stage. And just like I am giving you the minimum amount of my attention because that is all you deserve. <laughs> and I'm mostly just going to like stare at your husband as you are, you know, totally guilelessly. When she went down on him for the first time. Right, exactly. And be like totally embarrassingly like uh, obvious about what's going on. And and one of the things I also like about this movie is that the obliviousness of Patrick Wilson and Elizabeth Reeser is infuriating. <laughs> and- see, I don't th- see. This is also why I think Patrick Wilson is great in this movie. I don't think they're oblivious at all. Well, they're the seeming obliviousness. Yeah. Time. Yes. Yeah. The way I think Patrick Wilson is so good because I do think it. He knows what's going on the whole time, and of course, it eventually comes out that it's like, well, his wife was like, be nice to her. <coughs> she probably needs someone to connect to, like. And it's so there in his performance, but he's never telling you that. And also because, like, mm. Mavis does some crazy shit in this movie. He yeah, can't no kidding. overplay it because then it loses the movie. Yeah. You know, for her. Like, there has to be a small, like, iota of where we feel like she might have an in with him, right? Mm-hmm. Because he can't overplay it and, right. like, play that he thinks she's being crazy. Right. Right. Also, this is a it's very... just like that breed of straight man, especially that breed of 40-year-old straight man yeah. who never lets it show on their face that, like, I think you're crazy. Right. But they just, like, are very good at being stone-faced and nice. But he's also not <laughs> a bad person. Like, I think there's a way no. to draw that character to be like, oh, you know what's going on. You're inviting this. You're, you know, testing the waters of whatever. And... I don't. I like, think this movie thinks absolutely none of these people are bad people. If anything, like Mavis's, you know, swan dive into her high school mentality, yeah. I think the movie has some grace for it because with all of these other ancillary characters, like you know Elizabeth Razor's friends and uh, you know some, even some of the parents, it's just like yeah, it's so easy <laughs> to yeah. fall into that trap. It's yeah. so easy to slip into that mentality when you're around. Yeah those people in your life yeah yeah all right um let's uh trudge on forward then and we'll get into the 60 second plot description there's a lot there's a lot going on in this movie that is 97 minutes and and seemingly the plot is simple but there's a lot of little things going on here no filler in this movie this movie is a buffet it is a steak dinner it is (laughs) no what it it is is it's a it's a champagne. It's a I tray with both with it's a tray with fried chicken, a personal pan pizza, and a Crunchwrap Supreme all on the same tray, <laughs> and it's a full. When I saw, I was like, the first time you and see caviar, the, caviar. It's very Chekhov, right? You see the Kentaco Hut, and you're like, well, at some point, somebody's going to need to have a meal with one food stuff from each of those different establishments on it. And she finally does. You see that, that the clerk loading up the tray. And Let me tell you, there is oof. nothing like having a chili cheese burrito with some Pizza Hut breadsticks. It's just like, <laughs> you know, that's the order. That's, that's the order. I have never uh, uh, experienced a, the, the glory of the Kentaco Hut myself. I've literally never seen an, a full Kentaco Hut. It's two, I've seen them. never three. I've seen them. But oh, so it's like that's like the holy grail. Like you can see two of them, but like the three of them, it's like the uh, 
It's like a four-leaf clover or something like that? actual unicorn. Okay, excellent. It's like you have to complete a side quest for that to be able to (laughs) unlock in your life. (laughs) Fantastic. All right, so we're going to be talking about the 2011 movie Young Adult today. Directed by Jason Reitman, written by the wonderful Diablo Cody, starring Charlize Theron, Patrick Wilson, Patton Oswalt, Elizabeth Reeser, Colette Wolfe, Jill Eikenberry, Mary Beth Hurt, Louisa Krauss, the two-scene wonder Louisa Krauss, uh, Hedy Ann Park, the voice of J.K. Simmons, briefly. And this movie skipped all the festivals in 2011 and premiered in we'll limited release it. on December 9th, 2011. Ultimately was not a a barn burner of a hit. It made a little bit of money. I think it cleared its budget, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, at least its production budget. But um, yeah, so Chris, if you are ready, I've got my stopwatch ready for a 60-second plot description for young adults. I'm ready. All right, time starts now. All right, so we're following Mavis Gary. She is a ghostwriter for a teen series that is ending she gets a at the same time that this series is ending she gets a birth announcement for her high school boyfriend buddy slade's baby and uh, is kind of going through a breakdown and she decides to go back home and win buddy slade back that sounds insane because it is meanwhile while she's back at home she is constantly binge drinking and meets matt freehoff her uh locker mate in high school who in high school was brutally uh beaten uh in the assumption that he is gay but he was not so he was hate crimed for uh no essential reason meanwhile she is meeting back up with buddy slade and trying to ingratiate herself to him she meets his his wife beth beth who is in a band and over several meetings across uh, about a week or so she and matt get close but he tells her that she's crazy essentially and then there's a giant blow up uh at this baby naming party where uh mavis reveals that part of her trauma was having a um miscarriage with buddy while they were very young and she ends up sleeping with matt and not changing and uh going back to minneapolis 13 seconds over not too bad um when you get into a plot description it sounds like absolutely nothing happens in this movie right but so much does happen in this movie but it's like repeated meetings of her mm-hmm. and Matt, repeated meetings of her and Buddy that yeah. get more and more uncomfortable. Yeah. And she's she has every night ending with binge drinking. It's Yeah. She's yeah. like pounding Maker's Mark throughout the, this Oh, movie. the scene at the at the house, the naming uh ceremony where she uh Buddy finally sort of tells her off and she heads downstairs and she downs Two, like, full drinks of Baker's Mark. Just, like, pours it in the cup, downs it, pours it in the cup, downs it. And and then, I think, has a drink in her hand when she's out on the lawn, right? When she gets the sangria spilled on her. And mm-hmm. so, like, yeah, she goes full out in this movie in a way <laughs> well, that is there's hard also the to scene uh, in Matt's garage because Matt is uh, distilling bur- a home a homemade bourbon. Of yeah. The... the Exactly, this dude is making homemade bourbon. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't really know what it is. He's naming it after Mos Eisley. Yes. And she's <laughs> downing a whole mason jar worth of it. And she's like, I was supposed to sip this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like, that's part of the reason why she latches on to Matt, right? Is like the, 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 he's an easy source of companionship for boozing, essentially. And, um, eventually be also because of his kind of 
outsider status. He's somebody she can bitch about the other people in the mm-hmm. town too. Even as he's like telling her like right off the bat, like you shouldn't be doing this. I for some he's reason he's functional to the plot, and the only scene that ever really makes it feel that way is the first scene where she is drunk with him and says, I'm here to win Buddy back. Yeah. I am going to confess to you yeah. why I am yeah. here. Um, this movie contrasts with My Best Friend's Wedding so perfectly <laughs> in a way that I never really it's like realized. like My Best Friend's Wedding was in the real world. Like it, it's, it's dark-hearted My Best Friend's Wedding, right? Where it's the same thing, though. Comes back to town with an agenda... She acquires not an actual gay person in this case, but somebody who was uh, mistaken for a gay Believed person. To be gay. Um, but it's the same thing where, like, you know, she's she's come with a mission. She is the bad guy. Like, it is unambiguous. But because it's so, like, you know, absolutely vinegary about the whole thing, there is no. But like, it's the same thing where, like, audiences did not want Julia Roberts and My Best Friend's Wedding to have a happy ending. And young adults, like, okay, like, gotcha. Here you go. <laughs> um, where, like, we don't even get She's to see... She's not having a happy present, either. She doesn't even have a last scene with Matt. We don't even get to see nope. him feeling dejected by her when she leaves. Like, it's the sister who has that scene. Um, we'll get to that, though, um, soon enough. I feel like we should start, though with the Juno of it all, right? Yes. Where uh, Diablo Cody is this, like, comes-out-of-nowhere screenwriter. She's this, you know, leopard print-wearing at the Oscars, like, former stripper, and she's got a whole story to tell, and she's a name-brand screenwriter from the jump. And Juno is this indie sensation in 2007, in this year where the Oscar race came to be defined by these big sort of like finally breakthrough auteurs and the Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson. And then that third sort of like kid sister (laughs) just sidling up next to them is Juno, which is, which gets into the best picture race because it is sort of the feel good comedy, even though right from the jump, there were a lot of people who were like, this is nails on a chalkboard, this style of dialogue, Mm is too much, all of the honest-to-blogs and the hamburger phones and the ego is prego and all of this, and I want to blow my well brains out. We are both on the out. record as being Juno is about way, way much more this than is the, thing. the way that can And yet, speaks. I watched the first 10, 15 minutes of Juno, and I'm like, well, yeah, I get it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, <laughs> that first 15 minutes of Juno is an endurance test to make sure that you are, you know, you, you can get past that point. And get to the rest of, you know, what is great about that movie. But it's a big Oscar success. It's, what, four or five nominations. Uh, Uh, Jason Reitman got the Best Director nomination for it, which was not expected at the time. Right. He was that, That felt like it was the classic. It was right after Little Miss Sunshine. So everybody assumed it was the classic Fox Searchlight. It was Searchlight, right, Juno? It was Searchlight, yes. Fox Searchlight, Best Picture nominee, but it's not going to get a director nomination because it's not really a directory movie. Um, but he does. Uh, that Who was the lone director? Oh, Julian Schnabel was the lone director in 2007, boo. Um, yes. Robbing Joe Wright for his Atonement nomination that he should have gotten. Anyway, um, Diablo Cody wins Best Original Screenplay. And against heavy competition. Yeah, what was the competition in original that year? That was uh Definitely Michael Clayton. 
Definitely, uh, no, There Will Be Blood was adapted. Yes. Uh, no Country was adapted. Lars, this is, that was also the year, I believe, where there are Three multiple yeah. female screen, nominated screenwriters. It's yeah. also Lars and the Real Girl. And The Savages. Uh, my beloved The Savages. Yeah. And then what would have been the fifth that year? If I can think of it. You look it up and see if I can race you to it. Um, <laughs> uh, Michael Clayton, Lars and the Real Girl, Juno, Savages, and... Uh, no! I'm struggling. I can't get there. Away From Her was a... No, Away From Her would have been an oh. adapted. No surprise. Uh, we should have thought of this already. Ratatouille. Oh, of course, Ratatouille. Yes. That is good competition. That's a... That's a banger original screenplay line. but there was That's no like, question that diablo cody was going to win that she was the story and if juno was going to win anything it was going to win that and um it's just a really good launching pad then she and reitman sort of diverge from that point not for any like creative different reasons but he goes and makes up in the air in 2009 and has again a big huge hit with oscars again gets nominated for best picture and best director um clooney I mean, Bridges was always going to win Best Actor that year. I think if, but mm-hmm. if Clooney, that's one of those things where if Clooney had not already won an Oscar for Syriana, I do think he probably wins the Oscar for Up in the Air. Yeah, because he probably wouldn't. Ha- I mean, he he his acting Oscar should be for Michael Clayton, but he but he was never going to win for Michael Clayton. Was not going to be Tanisha Lewis, right? Um, and so, but also in that season, yeah. It really metastasizes that Jason Reitman is fucking annoying. Yes. And <laughs> that was the season where it did happen. It gets yes. blamed for him losing that. There was controversy around that adapted screenplay nomination because it's <sighs> reading between the lines, it sounds like Jason Reitman did not want the, co- the credited sc- co screenwriter credited for that movie because they apparently worked on it completely separately mm-hmm. that adaptation yeah and there was animosity there and so precious ends up winning right um which was not which expected was to that was a surprise win all. that night yes yeah yeah, yeah. but 2009 is an interesting sort of like two roads diverged in a wood right where jason reitman makes up in the air and gets a lot of success off of it and then diablo cody writes the script for jennifer's body which is directed by karen kusama which we both love that movie. Yes. And, like, the culture has come around on that movie. But that movie was a big old flopperoonie in 2009. And it was reviled. That was sort of the peak Megan Fox. Uh, backlash isn't even the word. Sort of, like, peak Megan Fox beatdown, kind of, in the culture. I mean, it's also a movie that's, like, about the type of shit that caused mm-hmm. that movie to get the critical beatdown that it did. And by yeah. critical beatdown, we mean, like... This is also the rise of a lot of, you know, internet criticism. So it's dudes on the internet really trashing this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's once yes, again. that movie. Yes, you're right to position it as, you know, two roads diverging here. Yeah. But like the, the roads diverge again because now we've. We as a culture have come around on Jennifer's body yes. and are correct about Jennifer's body. And the worm now, has turned on Jason Reitman in a serious way. They've turned on Jason Reitman, but specifically with Up in the Air, it's a movie that yeah. nobody talks about now. I think it's a good movie. Me too. Um, yeah. With some really great performances. But yeah. 
uh, yeah, no one talks about that movie. <laughs> um, but so Jennifer's body is once again Diablo Cody writing a teenage girl protagonist. She's sort of in the high school realm once again. And one of the uh, impetus, impetuses, impet- mm-hmm. impetuses, um, I am somebody who Impetai. works with words for a living. Um, for uh, writing young adult was, she was like, I kept getting asked, like, why do you keep writing about teenage girls in your whatever, um, in your work? And she's like, I started to wonder, like, is this a thing? Is this some sort of, like, <laughs> arrested adolescence thing? And that sort of helped. I mean, one of the other inspirations for young adult is she wanted to make a essentially an antihero movie, a character study mm-hmm. antihero movie, but about a woman. So also in 2009, Diablo Cody uh, creates the television series United States of Terra for uh, Showtime, which eventually runs for three seasons. But it is a, I imagine it had to have been a fraught production just because there was a lot of, I think there were a lot of whispers behind the scenes. I think it started off as a Diablo Cody project. I think at some point, like Joey Soloway was a was a writer and at one point creative on that show and that show sort of I think has a lot of you know sort of authorial voices between the two of them Diablo Cody had talked about after the fact that she wasn't really a writer's room person she much preferred to write things on her own and Whatever, yada, yada, yada. That is a show I really loved. I don't know. Did you ever watch United States of Terror? Were you a Terra person? I've I've never... I always never have access to Showtime when I need to have access to Showtime. I have so the DVDs, I and I'm just going to, like, mail them to you. But I need to, to catch up to it. I it's it's a show that, like... It's, an again, you know, Diablo Cody does this a lot, where it's like, you can see where some people would take one look at that and just be like, not my thing. Too much. Um, it, it, it definitely bears her stamp in a lot of ways but it's a show that i really really loved i ended up really falling in love with the characters it was the first time i had seen brie larson in anything and she was really good in that and rosemary dewitt plays tony collette's sister and she's really good in that Patton oswalt is in it i think because of um that connection well no that would have predated so actually Patton oswalt and uh young adult comes after the fact anyway whatever whatever um that show runs from 2009 to 2011. And so when that show is ending, Young Adult is about getting ready to come into theaters. So Diablo Cody and the United States of Terra, even though it ran three seasons, was sort of seen as a disappointment, right? It was never, the audience for that show was never really enough. It kind of had to work to get to three seasons. So this project then, this reteaming with Jason Reitman, feels, felt like at the time, like, okay, let's get this train back on the track. Um, you know, a couple of, if not flops, then disappointments for Diablo Cody. And now we're back to this teaming that did so well in 2007. And the trailer was great. The trailer had that, if you remember, that uh, it used David Bowie's Queen Bitch uh, mm-hmm. really, really well. And just seemed incredibly exciting and then it skipped the festivals sort of Mm -hmm. strategically skipped the festivals because i remember jason reitman kind of being like i don't want to happen to up in the air to happen to this movie which yeah i i get it because festivals can be a lot and maybe festivals wouldn't be the best environment for this movie especially after like 
you know, maybe Diablo Cody might have felt that way too because Jennifer's body debuted at TIFF. Yeah. Like, and but there was a sense a that Up in the Air peaked early. Right. Peaked in the but early still, fall. Still, it's like Up in the Air was a hit movie. That right. movie made money. Right. But what are you talking about? Right. Oh, um, I agree. Um, but yes, it was in that movie. In that movie season, it was the early front runner. It probably peaked at Telluride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 But what they do instead, they kind of make their own festival where it goes to a couple major cities ahead of the movie, uh, of the movie's regular release. Each city has like a local designer design a poster for it. Ah, and that's cool. You know, they kind of get to make this kind of bespoke mm-hmm. <laughs> release for it that you do. You see versions of that today where it's like we're going to. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking the day after the the bow was afraid Aster movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which apparent sneak premiere? They, they said that it was a screening where tickets were sold, but I'm not seeing any you know normies attend that. I I, so I think everybody knew that that wasn't the midsummer screening. I talked to I heard from at least one person who that who was genuine that it was a surprise. Uh, genuine surprise uh, pulled on people. Who so thought you mean to tell to me all these film critics are just going to oh, see Midsummer? No, 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 no. The critics, the critics, I think had seen it. I think they were embargoed on talking about it until yesterday. Um, mm, I saw, I saw critics that were at that screening and like oh, taking pictures of the Q and That's interesting. Well, we'll see. I guess we'll. Uh, you are the cynic here, and I am the true believer, right. and we'll see who's right. <laughs> um. We're not talking about that, though, because I don't want to know anything about that movie. Before. I'm excited to see it, though. I will say that. Sure, um, sure. I want to absolutely not participate in any discourse around it, especially before yeah, sure, sure, sure. real people. Sure, it. sure, sure. Real people. Uh, fake America has seen Bo is Afraid, and now real America is going <laughs> to see Bo is Afraid. Um, let's pivot well, to... Sh- we are fake America. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always been a part of fake America. Sarah Palin called me fake America, and now... Uh, uh, I am I am not a real moviegoer. Okay, so Charlize Theron. Let's pivot. Let's talk about uh, Charlize. This I is mean, one of my favorite performances of hers uh, of I, all time. I mean, it's interesting. I would say, and I have said, the best performances of the decade we're talking about both came in this same year. It's Charlize Theron in this, and it's Anna Paquin in Marco I, I figured you would um, say that, yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know... Not entirely uh, dissimilar, dissimilar, you know. (laughs) Yeah. People who, they both are playing people who are, you know, on their own mission that is probably misguided, who can behave absolutely beastly, um, but within a movie that I still think views both of them empathically. Sure, Um, sure. One is in a comedy and one is in an opera, so <laughs> right. you know the tone is different. Right. But, um, the the Charlize Theron career path at this point, though, I find deeply fascinating because she wins. Obviously, her her pre monster career, which we're not going to get into too deeply, but like that mo- part of the appeal of the monster performance and the sort of the Oscar trajectory for that was the fact that like a lot of people didn't think she had that performance in her, right? She was, you know, 
it's she wasn't it's not like she was this like arm candy actress, right? But she was mostly seen as a commercial actress in other people's projects, right? She's in The Devil's Advocate and she's in uh, Mighty Joe Young and she's, you know, uh what was the Woody Allen? Curse of the Jade Scorpion? She's in one of those she's Woody Allen. She's in a Allen lot movies. of movies where she plays the woman. Right. You know. Right. Um, and then Monster is this, like, huge, just, like, wallop out of nowhere. Nobody thought that she had that performance in her. She wins the Oscar quite deservedly, I would say, that year. And mm-hmm. gets the, to me, I always think of this as the classic sort of Halo nomination. Two years later, she gets the nomination for North Country, which is like, hey, Charlize, we're glad we gave you an Oscar. Good for you for following it up with a very good performance in a Oscar-friendly genre uh, you know, true life story. You're a you're a miner who's fighting for union shit. Whatever, we love it. North Country nomination in 2005, and then the slump hits, right? Well, because the same the same season as North Country. Speaking of the great mistreatment of Karen Kusama, yeah, Eon Flux happens. That's the thing, and Eon Flux is. Um, yeah, you're right that the, the, the Kusama comes back into the conversation. Eon Flux is a sort of big budget sci-fi, high concept sci-fi based on the anime uh, uh, c- uh, television program that MTV had aired like late at night. Um, Eon Flux flops. Big old, big old belly flop. I'm here flop. to say Eon Flux is fun. Eon Flux? <laughs> is, it, is, that, is that the Chris File? Eon Flux Flux. Yeah. I definitely have seen it, but it's been ages like genuinely like back like it's been since 2005 so i remember very little she definitely had the dark hair in it that was the thing you know famous blonde mm-hmm. charlie Theron. now is going dark haired for eon flux uh was francis mcdormand also in that now that i forget but i do think that there is some other like prestige actress maybe playing Hold a on. villain let me look up who else is in this yeah movie. look up who else yes francis mcdormand is in this movie along with sophie okonedo right i knew sophie okonedo was in that uh, but yeah so that was the year that francis and shirley's were in two things together so from there she's in in the valley of ella in 2007 which is an oscar success for tommy lee jones but she's very much the sort of afterthought. She's the lead, but she's the afterthought of the lead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Battle in Seattle, which I believe Stuart Townsend directed, her husband at the time, I Stuart think Townsend that's true. directed. Um, a movie called Sleepwalking in 2008, which was a Sundance movie that she had produced and also starred in. Hancock, the summer blockbuster Will Smith movie that nobody really knew quite how to take i think it made money but not clearly the kind intending of... to start a franchise remember right. when people would start franchises from original material yeah um and 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 partly because things like hancock got roundly rejected by uh by the american imagination that they were like no uh that movie also tried to be like super pull a fast one on the audience she's the, the twist because yeah she's the twist that she is also a superhero and his like ex like yes. yeah you think she's the normie. You think she's like a regular person who encounters Hancock and they're going to have this sort of Superman and, and Lois sort of a thing. And it's like, no, she's right. his like super villain ex-wife. And they're like ancient creatures who yeah. have all way. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of stupid. It's a more, it, it's kind of stupid, but it's sort of like. It's I remember a, having fun with it. Yes. But uh, for a Will Smith action superhero movie, it disappointed. 
Um, then 2009, she's in The Burning Plane, which people most, that's a Guillermo Arriaga movie, which is mostly remembered mm-hmm. as being like, oh, hey, Jennifer Lawrence was in this a year before she broke through in Winter's Bone. Um, and then also in 2009, she's in The Road, which she's like, she's in flashback scenes in The Road, right? She's his mm-hmm. wife, who is at this point in the narrative is dead and he flashes back to her. Like, that's sort of the thing that she's in. She's the not movie. in the movie much. She, what? I remember being the best thing about the movie, but she's not in the movie much. One of the things I was struck by when I was looking at her career stretch from this point on IMDb is uh, the two most sort of recognizable things from that era are her uh, season spent on Arrested Development playing um, uh, Jason Bateman's uh, love interest who ends up being uh, mentally delayed and uh, controversially so and also her uh dior ad is listed on her imdb gold is cold diamonds are dead a limousine is a car don't pretend feel what's real that's it The J'adore Dior uh, ad campaign that she did. And that was maybe like the most well-known Charlize Theron project. In which her character, uh, scare quotes, is credited as diva. Oh, me. Honestly true. (laughs) They're great ads. They're really good ads. Um, But so that's sort of this like six-year stretch between North Country and Young Adult where she's slumping. And I think even though Young Adult isn't a big hit... It is a career rejuvenator, I think, for her mm-hmm. in terms of people really seeing what she can do with a richly drawn and complicated and, you know, really juicy character. And she really tears into this role. And while doesn't she doesn't get the Oscar nomination, and I would argue that she doesn't. Where do you think she finished in the in the voting? <laughs> right. I don't think she finished very well. Um, right. Even though she's in a lot of the precursors. She's a Globe nominee. She's a Critics' Choice nominee. Which those are, are the nominations I would expect her to get for a movie like this. Sure. No SAG, no BAFTA. But so who's so Golden Globe, she's nominated in musical or comedy. She loses to Michelle Williams for My Week with Marilyn, one of the great fraudulent musical or comedy nominations <laughs> because she sings one song <sighs> at the beginning of the movie but the other nominees there jodie foster and kate winslet for carnage who are non-factors in that best actress race kristen right. wig for bridesmaids which kristen wig's great in bridesmaids and I'm, that's a perfect golden globe nomination but i also don't think she was a factor um i might think that she got that she placed higher than Charlize theron like <laughs> the while this movie got, I what is this movie on Rotten Tomatoes in the seventies or something? Eighty. It's a it's a it's a it's okay. a baseline eighty. Yeah, yeah. But eighty ten years ago is not eighty today. Sure. Eighty ten years ago would be like sixty five today, or you know it. So w- let's, let, so there the, was cr- a lot of hot 
not hostility isn't even the right word, but this movie was very quickly pegged as it was hard to warm up to nasty and mean spirited. Right. And I think it gave voters who were, you know, trying to triage their screener choices reason to maybe not watch it right away. Mm -hmm. Um, Critics choice. She lost to Viola Davis for the help. Meryl for the iron lady and Michelle Williams were also nominated. They would get Oscar nominations. Elizabeth Olsen's nominated for Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. And then Tilda Swinton, who's the one who I think is sixth place this year, uh, for We Need to Talk About Kevin, is also nominated. So it's hard to argue again. I mean, <laughs> I I would believe that Tilda wasn't sixth place because it's like, well, she didn't get that nomination because the Academy is never going to nominate that movie. Um, I think she came close. Like, when she shows up everywhere else, it's like, yeah, she probably was. Do you have handy the SAG and BAFTAs that year? You have your little chart, right? Uh, let me um, let me get into my Google Drive because <laughs> now I want to dig in. I want to I want to know who I would place above Charlize in the voting for that year. Okay, so uh, SAG is the same as the Oscars with Rooney Mara swapped in for Tilda Swinton. Keep in mind that this whole season. I don't think critics saw the girl with the dragon tattoo until very late, very, very late. Yeah. Um, because I think there was a rush to finish that movie. They were filming that three hour <laughs> multiple location. Right. Uh, behemoth of a movie in like February, March. Right. <laughs> and right. they still made a Christmas release date. Yeah. I think Rooney Mara would have shown up. For things like SAG, if sure. you know they sure. were able to see it, BAFTA nominated Bernice Bejeau in, in lead, lead, which That's, I think is correct. Yeah, I hate that nomination. I just don't. That performance don't does like nothing movie. for me, and it's right. such a. I I think it's barely. I don't think it's worthy of a supporting nomination, much less a lead nomination. Like that's right. Um, well, and. Indie Spirit on top of Michelle Williams winning for my week with Marilyn and Elizabeth Olsen. They nominate a few other performances that, you know, wouldn't have been Oscar uh, contenders except for Adepero Oduya for Pariah. Hmm. Beloved Pariah. Sure. Who, you know, um, shows up in the Meryl speech. So, yes. But basically, that's... Charlize does not, though, right? No. Well, no, because Charlize was nominated at that club. Um, but, and, and Meryl mostly, she rattles off the names of the, the women nominated in drama against her and then uh, goes into the unnominated women like Mia and, uh, and Adepero. So given that whole canvas then, and I'm not sure, I don't think there's anybody who we haven't mentioned who probably... Ooh. Kirsten Dunst for Melancholia wins National Society, but I would have to imagine that I, I, I'm, I'm curious where she might have fallen. I sure. would maybe buy her showing up above Charlize Theron, but because Charlize Theron's already yeah. an Oscar nominee, an Oscar winner at this point. Yeah. So where do you, where, where, where would you think, where would you guess that Charlize landed in the voting? Maybe eighth. I was going to say eighth, right? Eighth seems right. It's yeah. Tilda ahead of her and one of the others, whether it's, um, Elizabeth Olsen or Kristen Wiig or Kate or Kirsten Dunst, like one of those three, probably right. also ahead of, of Shirley's. But I'd say probably eighth. A very um, distant eighth. Oh, yeah. 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 I think that's a six person race that ended up shaking out to five. Um, 
in my opinion. I think Tilda got closer than you do. But um, anyway, so back to Charlize. Yeah, she's nominated for The Globe, as we said. She's nominated for Critics' Choice. And I think after this, her career takes a definite upswing, right? Like Young Adult, like I said, it's not a blockbuster, but... Immediately after this, she's, you know, in Snow White and the Huntsman, which is not, you know, setting the world on fire, but like, <laughs> but it, like, I think we can blame the uh, Dior ads for that. Uh. <laughs> but like, but even that, it's like, she's, it's a different stature, I think, from that point, right? Like, um, she's, she's. Yes, yes, she is reclaiming her movie star status at this point. Even Prometheus, right? She's the captain of that, or not, she's not the captain of the ship. Is she. Her and Idris Elba, one of them's a captain and one of them's like in charge of them. She's the capitalist of the ship. She sure is. Um, The thing about Prometheus was people showed up to Prometheus and were like, oh, I thought Charlize Theron was going to have a bigger role in this movie. Sure. Um, And then when do they start filming Mad Max Fury Road? Like, (sighs) Ask Kyle Buchanan. I know, I should. I should call Kyle up and just be like, Kyle, dial in and let us know. Um, But I imagine, so the, the, I, the lag time between young adult releasing in late 2011 and Mad Max Fury Road ramping up into production, it's probably closer than it seems with the four years of release date between them, right? So, and obviously I don't think like, you know, it's not like Mavis Gary's driving that big rig (laughs) in Mad Max Fury Road, but like, I do feel like that movie, that young adult sort of like, it, it reintroduces the world to what a great commanding screen presence she can be mm-hmm. in a movie. And I think you see that reflected in the movie roles that happen immediately thereafter. And yeah, her the, the 2010s are good for Charlize Theron after that. So, um, I mean, I think as... I mean, I do think she's one of our best living actresses. Yeah. I, I just think... She, monster excluded, she's not going to be someone who's recognized for her best work, which is mm, like, sure, you know, her nominations are going to go to Bombshell, which, um, yeah, that right, um, yeah, which is like, you watch that next, you watch that performance mm-hmm. next to this performance, and it's like they nominated that one, right? Which like put Bombshell uh, next to Furiosa, right? We understand why that happened, but it's just like, that's just kind of a nothing burger performance. It's all about the physical transformation, which was definitely aided by CGI. Um, The the quality, though, of her performance in Young Adult, where she... It's it's not even... it's Sometimes you boil performances down to, like, line readings or, you know, breakdown scenes or whatever, and it's beyond that. It's the way she weaponizes... This she smiles in this movie in a in such a like it's sinister but not overtly sinister. She like you can she like recaptures this teenage look of satisfaction on her face or this teenage look of sort of coquettishness, right? Where it's I I'm amazed what she's able to do with her face, where it's just like you can her see her private conversations with Buddy are this full regret. It's 
at first you think it's this regression to teenage girl, but you right. realize that it's a performance for Buddy yes. that she yes. would have put. It's not that she is behaving like a teenager. It's that she is putting on the same performance for him that she put on for him yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. It, the level of detail in this performance is fucking unreal. And yeah. like you're right about things like the way that she can weaponize a smile. It's yeah. an incredibly physical performance. And it's like, it's physical comedy, but not in the way we consider what physical comedy it's is. It's the right? way like she it's... presents herself. It's the way that like she and uh, Matthew, Pat Oswalt, have the argument when they're drinking behind the, the high school. And he... That's the one where he is like, you know, you, you know, you've grown up, but you're not an adult. You're still behaving like a teenager, this kind of thing. And what's the next thing we see is she's like back at the mall getting this like very adult outfit, right? That's the one where she does her hair and it's all pinned back. And she comes out looking very like executive secretary when she goes to Disney. And it's like, it's the way that she sort of physically presents herself in this very desperate to you know put on exactly the face that she needs to put on for that moment and it's all very good it's all very Mm -hmm. very good Mm -hmm. um what do you she oh go ahead no 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 no, no. you go ahead i was just gonna say i think one of the things at least at the time that was so such like a blindsiding effect of seeing this performance and like this is one of the few movies in my life that i've seen two days in a row (laughs) because like just to catch the detail of this performance yeah she hadn't really done comedy in this way before i mean like mavis gary is a very specific character and a real like challenge for whoever would have played them before but it's like We've never seen Charlene Theron do this before this movie, mm-hmm. and like now we can accept her as an actress who can be very funny. I yeah. mean, like there's there are moments of her, her monster performance that are just like so committed that they can be yes, you know, there's notes of humor in that performance, which is like something I don't think people really talk about. Um, yeah, but like we hadn't seen her. I mean, I would even argue we haven't really seen her have to handle dialogue in the way that Mavis Gary has to, right. you know, right. navigate that. And where it's like there's constantly in every word that she said there there is subtext, yes. subconscious, yeah. and then the text right. of what she's saying. She has to play multiple levels with literally yeah. every word out of her mouth. Um and yet it's also like the disdain coming out of her for everything is it's disdain. It's sort of this very, again, sort of like arrested adolescence worldview of like nothing matters in except for how it benefits or does not benefit her and her sort of, you know, standing the way she talks about uh, being married and having a child as if it's a hostage situation that she needs to liberate Buddy from, and her worldview is obviously so warped and so fucked, and um, and I mean, that's all on the page, right? And she she pulls that off of the page, and she gives you this terrifying uh, character as a result. Talk about the relationship between Mavis and Matthew in this movie, because I think it's a, it's, that's another one that sort of, I think, in some ways upends 
expectations about where you think it's going to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in some ways they are a mirror of each other and it's it's interesting because I love that you compared it to my best friend's wedding because like this is a dynamic between men and women that we usually only see on screen when it's a woman and a gay man. Right. Um, that I'm going to tell you she... the truth about your situation. <laughs> right. And I'm yeah. going. We are the people that we can just be fully honest with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does. He's so good in this. Movie. He's so good. Um, but that character really, it's he takes on that outsider status, right? Where like mm-hmm. uh, everybody. Even like Buddy still thinks he's gay. Like Buddy has not does not remember that part of high school where um, it turned out that where people stop paying attention to what happened to him because they're like, oh, he's straight. Oh. Right, right, exactly. Um, and then moved on to Mavis's cousin, who was the happy uh, guy, the positive guy in the wheelchair, and mm-hmm. he's the one that everybody liked. Um, but yeah, Matthew also sort of is crystallized in high school via what happened to him. So we're much more sympathetic to that because this like awful monstrous thing happened to him. And yeah, Patton Oswalt does a very good job of selling that while not like begging for our pity in a way. Well, and I think, I think the movie ultimately gets there with Mavis, but gets there first with Matt in that, these are characters who are somewhat frozen by their trauma specifically. Mm -hmm. And at least the other characters like Beth and Buddy, we don't ever know. I'm sure they've had things that were traumatic and, you know, formative for them, but like the movie presents them as it's so easy to be them because they are not frozen in time by some horrible thing that happened to them. Right. Because for like Matt, it's like, there's not, he became disabled because of what, right traumatic happened to him right you know there's nothing he can really do right. to combat that other than try to just live a, a life that makes him happy yeah um and you know mavis you know it takes a lot for us to get to the point where we get that information right um about the miscarriage is what you're talking about right yeah, yeah but yeah. it's also you know this very funny but, you know, I think a lesser movie would come at it in a way that is less interesting, but it shows that he especially, and he says as much, he's always going to be drawn and have this type of relationship yeah. with that type of woman. Yeah. Um, and I think the surpri- the surprising thing, the smart thing, is that she's going to have the same type of relationship with any man. You talked about how she just kind of leaves. Right. Which also, we see her on a date where she brings this guy back home. At the beginning. At the very beginning of the yeah. movie. We haven't even talked about this opening se- this genius opening sequence yeah. of the movie. And she leaves and goes back to her hometown while he's still there. She yes. just leaves this guy in her apartment. Well, and the date's so funny. We never see his face. We're, the camera's behind him. So, um... But he's talking about how he had done uh, outreach work in Latin America and whatever. And she (laughs) goes, oh, awful. And he's like, it's actually the most rewarding experience of my life. And she's like, oh, yeah. Like, all right. Um, (laughs) Well, first of all, the first thing. If she's that much of an asshole and he still goes home with her. Sorry. He's still a dirtbag. Oh, yeah. Or if not a dirtbag, then just like certainly not as deep as as he uh, pertains to Uh, be. Right. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, you know, dating pools in mid-sized cities, I'm not going to knock it. You know what I mean? You do what you got to do. 
Um, no one has a harder time in this movie. Nobody has a harder go of it. No one gets the short end of the stick more than Dolce. Oh, the Pomeranian. That dog goes through it. That dog gets left in... Stuck in that uh, Hampton Inn room with the pee pad, like, for <laughs> days on end. Yep. Yeah. One of the funniest bits in the opening sequence, which, like, Jason Reitman will tell you he's very proud that he made a movie that opens with ten minutes of silence yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the funniest breaks of it is when she's driving back and it's like, it's jamming to the... Uh, What's the t- is it teenage fan club? The name of the band? Teenage fan club. Teenage fan club. Yeah, yeah, I always yeah. want to say teenage dirtbag. We'll we'll talk about the soundtrack uh, later because like I want Listen, to. Yeah, I, I've written about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it just breaks from like that banging soundtrack to suddenly be like Dolce go pee. <laughs> Dolce go pee because this dog understands English. You know the scene that's in the trailer, um, which is the first scene. She's checking in at the Hampton and Louisa <gasps> Krause. Is behind the Louisa Krauss two scene barn burner. Louisa Krauss, who I saw. Um, oh shit! Now I'm going to forget the name of the play about the, the flick. M- the, the flick, yes, who's so yeah. good in the flick and uh, is in a season of the Girlfriend Experience on uh, Stars. She's a really good actress, um, but she's like classic, tremendous performance, deadpan. <laughs> Uh, Hampton in uh, check-in clerk where she's saying, you know, is that a dog in your person? Was it a teaser or do they just use so much of it in the trailer that it's just like basically that whole scene? Because they used the whole like part. seconds, yes. there's like 15 huge laughs. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you can see the purse sort of growling and, and, and yipping or whatever <laughs> and Mavis is like, yeah, no, it's nothing and she's like, because we do allow small pets with a deposit. <laughs> And it's a genius line where Mavis is like, oh, well, I do have my dog in my car. He looks out to the car. And the purse just goes like, yep, yep, yep. It's great. Um, And the best physical bit of comedy to me in the whole movie, my favorite moment in the movie, is in that scene where after Mavis is like, well, I do have a small dog in my vehicle. And Louisa Krause just looks at her and... Charlize has not even a, it's like a fraction of a squint. Yep. And like, yep. do not question me. Yep. I will end you. And it's so, so, it's, it's that real, scene pairs, measured. pairs with me in the scene in Macy's where she's looking for the outfit to, she's shopping for the outfit. <laughs> and the, 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 the woman there is trying to help her shop. And she goes, this is also in the trailer. Um, where she goes, I'm going with an ex to a to a rock concert. First of all, the way she says I'm going to a rock concert. She's like, I need an outfit for a rock, a rock concert. concert. And like she's, they're going to see you two. Right. She's something. going to Chappie O'Malley's or whatever to see uh, Nipple Confusion for their <laughs> second performance ever at the bar. Um, Listen, if you can bank on anything in this world, is that I would be cheering, hopping, and drunk front row at Nipple Confusion. Totally. Oh, nipple yeah. Confusion great local band yeah yes exactly you're going to see the nipple confusion show friday night yeah um but the way she says you know the woman's like oh well we'll show him what he's been missing and she goes oh he's seen me lately but then she goes he knows but his but his wife hasn't seen me in a while and she like raises her like half full diet coke can and again the smirk and you're just like this is some a plus a plus shit uh i think that's also an important scene because we never Though, like, I really bristle when people are like, oh, she's a monster, and it, like, drives me crazy. We do have to see someone react really negatively yeah. to Mavis in this movie, and we get it through that, yeah. you know, Macy's associate. 
I related this time around. I related to every single person who reacted to her negatively in this movie. I really like, sorry to say, like I, I was not on Mavis's side in this viewing of this movie. Um, I mean, like I get it. And it's also comedy and it's funny. Oh yeah. I just think, I think when you're on the other side of this movie and you go through Mavis's journey. If all you can say is she is so awful, she is a monster. Oh, she's an incredibly interesting monster. But like, I'm not going to deny. <laughs> I'm not going to deny her monstrousness. I'm really not. But like, talking about the Macy's though, the 2011 specific cultural ephemera of this movie, I thought was fascinating. The fact that it mm-hmm. opens up, she's fallen asleep watching Kendra, uh, whatever the spinoff from the from that the Playmates show. She's watching Kendra, and then she's watching Kardashians later. Uh, the fact that, like, you you look at, like, because part the of the... revamped Star Search, right, in the yes. hotel, which, like, yeah. I, this, is the, this is the part that I always feel bad for laughing, when you have the, the punchline of this, like, teenage girl singing We've Only Just Begun. Yes. And it is yes. deeply funny, and I feel bad, because I'm like, well, she's performing, and she's doing her best, and I'm supposed to laugh at this moment. Well, you also get the scene where she's driving through Mercury, and she's sort of aghast at how everything is just corporate big box. It's a staples. It's a Chili's. It's a Chili's. It's a staples. It's a Kentaco hut. And then she goes to the Macy's later. And then I'm watching this from 2023 being like genuinely the saddest Macy's. That Macy's is long gone by now. Like Macy's as like mall culture was seen as this sort of like blight of suburbia or blight of like, you know, middle America. And now it's like, yeah, all those stores are closed. And, (laughs) um, but also the fact that she's in the, the little, (laughs) The sports bar in the middle of the afternoon, the saddest time ever to be in a sports bar, waiting with for her Buddy. Blackberry. With her Blackberry, where it's like that pre-iPhone where you couldn't even browse your email to busy yourself to make sure that you didn't look sad she and waiting. She's just typing <laughs> gobbledygook into her Blackberry or whatever. And I go, oh, we really have improved at the very least technology to make it look like you're busy when you just don't want to be embarrassingly like uh, waiting for somebody. So there's when at you're at that. a round table alone at a restaurant. Wait, so you wrote about the soundtrack to this movie? Yeah, back in my film experience days, I love. First of all, the Teenage Fan Club song, which I believe Ugh. was a scripted song choice. Yeah, you couldn't pick something more specific. Oh, but to it to sounds like, like the year that it came out, right? It just like exactly. Yeah, but it's also not like a standard. Like no one's listening to it. Like they are listening to Four Non Blondes. Right. Four Non Blondes is the most like, hey, that's what I call 1993 or whatever, 1995, whatever year that song came out. Of but it's it's so specific to a character in like I think we all have those songs that when we hear them, yeah. It's like, oh, I feel so much attachment to that song. Like, um, for me, probably one of them is Jennifer Page's crush. Right. Of like, that right. sounds like my childhood. But, that sounds like my childhood. But the people who um, Mavis and Buddy were, and you can get a sense, you get a sense immediately of what their social circle listened to, where it's like Teenage Fan Club. You get the Lemonhead song when they're in the bar. You get the Veruca mm-hmm. Salt song. You get the Candlebox song or Cracker or whatever the hell. It's Cracker, I think. Um but like this very sort of like early mid nineties alternative rock radio, like I, I, you're it's so transportive. It's such a well chosen soundtrack in that way. But the teenage fan club song, it is also while not being fully imprinted on the culture, it is incredibly catchy. It is the type of song that when you're on a road trip, you could listen to a dozen times and sing at the top of your lungs to. Yeah. And I think by the end of that sequence, yeah. 
you do fully like have that it's such an earworm you have that song stuck in your head for the rest of the movie and mavis has such a clear vision of that song it it was their song and then was you know she has such an attachment but then when you have the scene in the you have the nipple confusion concert excuse me yes thank you um when you have that they take that song away from her yeah they don't take that song. I mean, yes, they take that song away from her, but it, it's why she's so angry during it, too. Be- it's not just that Beth is performing what she thinks is their song. Yeah. There's this realization that it wasn't their song. It's just Buddy's song. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. maybe Mavis yeah. wasn't as much as she yeah. thought she was. You know? Also, I will say, the sight of that Maxell blank tape the the mixtape like <laughs> i had those tapes right like i absolutely had those the, the yellow with the purple with and the, the shapes the, yeah. and the triangles and the squares and the circles and all it's all yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah absolutely um can we talk about how the children have reappropriated cassette tapes now good if they're gonna reappropriate anything do it with cassette no, tapes yes bad 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 no bad, bad. i'm into it, it feels so funny do you know what the audio quality is on cassette sure they'll they don't fi- like it because they like cassettes they like it because it seems there's something there's so, i'm not i'm not gonna rail against youth culture <laughs> no do it please like, do it my culture does this too there just seems an embrace of tackiness because it's tacky oh yeah yeah. Like, I, okay, okay. We're going to hopscotch past the thing that I'm about to say, and we're not going to acknowledge it. When I was on the Adele store, when Ferdy came out, and I'm looking at Adele merch, we're going to skip past it, okay. and I can see that you can buy an Adele cassette. It is not for her 50-year-old fans. No, right. It's for her No, nobody still has, like, nobody who had a cassette player back in the day still has their old cassette player. Right. Right. I love it. Listen, if they're going to be annoying, at least be annoying in a way that I can relate to from my past. <laughs> they're annoying in so many other ways that I hate. Um, wait, but one last thing about the soundtrack, though, and this will lead us into talking about the ending of the movie. The Diana Ross song that plays over the ending credits, When We Grow Up. Yes. <laughs> which has, which is only there for the line where she says, uh, we don't have to change at all, which is like the gut punch of that ending right where mavis is on the precipice of realizing that she has to make some changes and then she is convinced by this like uh you know high school fame worshiping uh character that she is right and she is better than everybody and she doesn't have she's not the one who has to change and then it's almost like what's the song that's at the end of hereditary um uh that is judy collins doing both sides now yes um, it's that same kind of thing where it's just like this, like very beautiful <laughs> sounding thing about like this awful place that we've ling- we're lingering in at the end of this movie, where it's like the horror has not ceased, and, <laughs> and it's still going to happen, and she's not going to change, at least not yet. Um, so let's talk about that Colette Wolf scene. So, so Mavis and Jesus. Matt have sex in out of her despair and his sort of you know, complicated longing, right? And uh, she wakes up the next morning and she goes to get herself a cup of coffee in the kitchen. And there is Colette Wolf as his sister, who we've only seen like sort of sneering at him and being like confused by Mavis when she answers the door. 
but clearly she remembers she remembers everything about what did she say she's like i baked you cookies when we were in high school she's like i baked you those rice krispie treats that were in your lock or something like that where it's like oh yeah that one time 20 years ago and mavis doesn't remember but because the theron performance is so specific we we can also intimate that mavis probably didn't notice or care when it happened So they're in the kitchen, and Mavis is, again, just on the precipice of being like, you know, look at me. Look at how, look at where I've ended up at. I need to, she actually says the, the words, I need to make some changes. And Colette, well, if I can, I cannot remember her character's name. Sandra? Something? I can't remember. Yes. You're good here, Sandra. Um, yes. Goes, you don't have to change. Everybody here sucks. Everybody in this town is just, like, going through their dumb little useless lives, uh, waiting to die. They have no purpose. Nobody here. And one of the great things about Mavis is that, like, she is absolutely at this, like, lowest possible level of fame and import. She's not living in Los Angeles or New York or London or Paris. She's living in the Minneapolis. She's living in Minneapolis, right? But it's these, like, it's these levels of, you know, she's just enough of above everybody else. And and Sandra's just like, these people suck. And she's, like, not even separating herself necessarily from those people. She's just sort of like, mm-hmm. everything here is bad. This town is dumb. You are right to leave it. You should never look back. You are special and important <laughs> and better than us. And, <laughs> and, and you deserve <laughs> to feel that way. And Mavis just looks at her and she's like, thank you. I really needed to hear that. (laughs) An incredibly easily influenced person. And you watch it wash over her face that she's like, I don't need to change. I was right about everything. Everybody else here is bad. I just need to leave here and never, ever look back. And it's a horrifying (laughs) scene in a way. It's it's a ballsy piece of writing. And I think it's ultimately an honest piece of writing in that you know what is change for mavis carey what what is the positive substantive change that we could see for her in her future after this movie is over she could probably stop drinking is she fundamentally going to change as a person no yeah do people fundamentally change as people no and that is the way that is the pessimistic way of looking at it for sure yeah the way that this scene conveys that the way that it's also like reveals that people are prone and sometimes looking for an excuse yes or a nudge to not change yes that is so real yeah not only really smart but also simultaneously incredibly funny Mm -hmm. and incredibly sad like the Colette Wolf is incredible. Yeah. She was on my ballot that year. Yeah, yeah. She would stay on my ballot. I was so I was so hoping that she would have a breakout career. She was on she ended up being a guest performer on Cougar Town after this movie for a little bit. She mm-hmm. played Dan Bird's sort God, of what a time. Uh, Cougar Town. Oh man, I was such a fan of Cougar Town. I still am. Like I'll go back and like I love all of those performers. That was when I was really that was when my um, fondness for Busy Phillips sort of like went into overdrive of just like she's so fucking great. Um, I was a, I was a very big Cougar Town person at the time, um, and she was so good on that show briefly, and then it never really quite became 
Like you felt like she you were she was on the precipice of like getting that one big TV starring role, and it never quite happened for her, which is too bad. Um, but she's tremendous in this movie. Classic one scene barn burner Beatrice Strait kind of <laughs> performance, <laughs> and it like and it leaves you leave that movie. You know, with that, like, cold bucket of water dumped on you by the end, you're just like, oh, boy. Well, and it's also, like, it feels like the movie's almost thesis statement of, like, why do people get so caught up, especially, you know, suburban people, in their high school selves? And, you know, what is this whole peaked in high school idea? And she's this character who doesn't really have anything going on even if she's happy you know like what's the difference of you living this life at 30 is living it at 60 like the suburbs are bad y'all um okay but also though and maybe this is just sort of like where i the complicated place that i've sort of arrived in my life i look at a character not necessarily buddy but i look at beth right and i'm like she seems she's gonna have a full life she's She's got a baby she loves she's got a career that seems fulfilling for her where she's working with special needs kids and she's got she seems to be invested in that job she's got this band with good friends of hers who are supportive of her and hate the people that are out to be mean to her and she can play her drums on the weekend and she can pump and dump when she wants to go boozing for a night and she seems like she's fine and part of me a big part of me is looking at that and just being like that's the fucking life man <laughs> where she just seems contented but that's not that doesn't make everyone happy right. and not everybody can achieve that like that that is a but that's why she's so infuriating overcome yeah. for like a Mavis Gary character. Right. Like Mavis even says it at the end. It's like they why does she make it why do people like that make it look so easy? Yeah. Not only to just like be fine with that, yeah. but to be actually happy. And like there's people that want like the rest of us want so much more or like are trying to fulfill or even just something different. that we have to actually work for right. and but like, not that she didn't work to have the life that she has but like right right it's it's yeah. it's interesting it's like how much of mavis do i see and in well and that's like the high school mindset thing too and that's why the suburbs are bad is like it tells you you know, it, Mavis is coming from a life where it's just like, this is the path to happiness. Yeah. But, like, that's not the path that she necessarily yeah. wants or could even achieve for herself. The hell of it know, is. Who she naturally is. There are so many Mavises who actually, who are Mavis, but also never went to Minneapolis. Right? right. They're Mavis, but they stayed Which in Mercury. Is the Sandra character. And they sort of, well, that, but it's also the ones who, like, you know run the pta right you know what i mean like that sort of kind of thing just like have these sort of like suburban fiefdoms and um it's it's just like it's looking at a this is why i mean like mavis hates beth not only because of the buddy thing but mavis hates beth because she can look at beth and just know i could never obtain the happiness you have yeah in the way that you have. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's not possible for right. me. It's interesting. It's a good movie. Um, I wanted to, I'm going at Elizabeth Razor, also fantastic in this yeah, movie. Yeah, she's very good. Because, like, just after Mavis has 
you know, publicly embarrassing. That whole, the whole porch scene is embarrassing for both of them. Yeah. Um, but just like the look on her face, you can see, you get this, you get the full story in a, in like a flash of her being a very empathic person, understanding what Mavis is going through and understanding where she's at and trying to reach out to Buddy and just like showing up. Yeah. And maybe nobody else on that lawn gets that. And she tried really hard and was like super gracious to her and was trying to do what she could to take care of somebody. Yeah. And it didn't work. I wrote down a few lines of dialogue from the script because I really, I wanted to (laughs) recognize him. Obviously, Diablo Cody, I think, is a tremendous writer. Um, I mentioned before uh, when Buddy is talking about how he still thinks Matt is gay. And he goes, you called him theater (laughs) fag in high school. And she goes, theater fag's an expression, Buddy, where it's Mm -hmm. just like that is a crystallization of a type of person for sure. I know plenty of straight theater fags. Uh, um, The part... Early, she's talking to, I think it's when she pulls Matt outside the bar and tells him her plan. And she goes, love conquers all. Haven't you seen The Graduate? (laughs) Which is tremendous. Um, And then the scene where she's back at her parents' house and she's asking them to take down the photos of her and her ex-husband. She's like, please take down those photos of my failed marriage. And her mom goes, well, the wedding wasn't a failure. Remember the tiramisu? Which is... That whole scene is painful, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Just the way that her parents... Jill Eikenberry, who I only know from L.A. Law. Like, that's the only thing I know her from. She was, like, a major cast member on L.A. Law. You're too young for L.A. Law, I would imagine, right? Yeah. L.A. Law was the show I would try and, like, stay up late to, like, watch with my parents when I was <laughs> 11 or whatever for, like, just because it was the show that they watched at 10 o'clock on Thursday nights and I had to go to bed. And... Um, so I have like a lot of memories. I watched a lot of LA law and that was obviously this like big show. Uh, the only sort of lasting every once in a while, I'll go on YouTube and I'll watch the opening credits to LA law because I love watching old show opening credits. And that is a show where you talk about like a time capsule where like those opening credits last three minutes and the first minute and a half is just established shot it's like there's the credits don't kick in until halfway through and it's kind of amazing (laughs) um but that's the only thing i really know jill eikenberry from like she's sort of she's like the mom from growing pains who will every once in a while will pop up and like girl interrupted or whatever and it's just like oh right like there you are um have we gone mary beth hurt in one scene and just like conveying so much with like 30 seconds of how much time. she always that she fucking hates mavis and always did like that's the thing yes. is she never liked she mavis. even says something shitty to mavis because this is another thing that i i feel like i do have some empathy to mavis because like people always are like getting in a dig with her that it's just like well we never really they never really liked her yeah. or it's just like you know, that they've reduced her, that they haven't, you know, taken a minute to step back and look at her maybe the way that Beth does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, like, yeah, like, (laughs) I was just, like, this time watching it, that one, I even forget the kind of, like, half dig that she gets in at Mavis. And I'm like, why did you do that? You don't have to do that in that moment. But she so fucking hated her, and I get it. Yeah. I get it. Hated her ass. Um... Diablo Cody was nominated for the WGA Award and the Critics' Choice for Original Screenplay, both of which were won 
by Woody Allen for Midnight in Paris. And it's not just because Woody Allen's a bad person that I'm mad at this, but like I hate the script for Midnight in Paris. Like I'm so We've talked about this before. We were never Midnight in Paris people. And like this is There are Woody Allen movies even... that I really like, and Midnight in Paris is not one of them. Like that's the thing. I the the absolute sensation of Midnight in Paris was entirely lost on me. I didn't understand. There's a, why. there's small performances in that movie I really like, but like it's so right. off of the beaten path of the like the the meat and potatoes. But you of don't that movie. like it because those characters are written well. Well, and you don't it's... like it because the story is a good story. That's the, like the main story of that movie yeah. is garbage. Um, but the other ancillary nominees. So at the WGA, it was fifty fifty. The Seth Rogen Joseph Gordon Levitt comedy. Win-Win, which was the Tom McCarthy movie with uh, Paul Giamatti, and then Bridesmaids. And then at Critics' Choice, it was 50-50, Win-Win, and The Artist. I think the WGA got it better than the than the Critics' Choice. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how close 50-50 and Win-Win probably got to being Oscar nominees, because they would have been the only mm-hmm. nomination that either one of those movies had gotten. We could do either one of I those. I would love to do Win-Win at some point. I'd love to I do like either one. I liked so both much. of those movies. Win-Win is is probably the better one, but like I think there's stuff in 50-50 that's really good. Um, uh, two, two good sort of mid-size... Again, they don't make movies like this anymore, but like they really don't, right? Mid-size indie comedies right i'm so glad that you brought up this conversation though because i wanted to have this conversation because even at the time it was like well maybe charlie's theron can get in and it was just around her performance and i'm like no this uh, what it's absolutely absurd that this movie didn't get more headway in the original screenplay race i mean it it was the same year as a female-led comedy and bridesmaids and because can only have you know, one apparently the way the things are there can only be one yeah um which is so absurd because you look at the year that diablo cody won for but it's also just like well let's read off know, the nominees there's... at the oscars that year so midnight in paris also won the oscar it would yes. not be denied the artist got nominated michelle hazanavisius got nominated for screenplay which there are people who liked that movie i'm not going to begrudge that but like i was not a big huge artist fan there's smart people that like that yeah. movie. Bridesmaids, like you it said. Was awesome. A separation. Oscar Farhadi got nominated for a separation. And then JC Chandor for Margin Call, which I wouldn't have nominated Margin Call, but that's an interesting Oscar nomination. And I like right. that I like when movies that don't get nominated anywhere else get nominated in screenplay. But that could have been young adult and it should have been young adult instead. If anybody thought that I was a grouch the previous Oscar season, uh for any uh, reason no there are just some seasons that i am a full grouch and i am just not on board with what's happening and this season was one of them because of the i don't this i don't like this best picture lineup period and 2011 yeah it's one of the worst that i mean yeah this is why i i uh, mean when i say that warhorse was the best of the nominated movies i mean it but it's also the best of i can't get behind that but i appreciate you what is yours tree of life uh, I would either have voted for Moneyball or Tree of yeah, Life. Whatever. Yes. Uh, Warhurst is better than both of those. Anyway. Um, uh, sure. Sure, 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 sure. Anything else you want to talk about, young adult, before we go into the IMDb game? Um, I mean, love any movie that stink eyes a baby. <laughs> it did remind me of that Seinfeld, right? Some night, huh? Yeah. I wish I had my telescope. Some dinner, huh? Yeah. Nothing like really fresh-caught lobster. Some house, huh? 
It was built by Mark Farbman. He built a lot of these homes here. Some ugly baby, huh? <laughs> Some ugly baby, huh? Uh, one of my favorites. I mean, this is this is just such a movie that feels so packed that I came into this episode fully knowing that we're going to be on the other side of it, and I'll be pissed that I forgot to talk about this or that or um, sure, just because there's so much there. Yeah. Um, the people who were on the right side of history about this movie, though, from the not the jump, I would say, because I felt very on an island. Oh, did you? Loving oh, interesting. As much as I did, I felt like I had some company. I feel like there was from. I think from the break there was. A, I think a in the follow-up years, though, the people that did really appreciate this movie for what it is are gay people. Well, sure. Who I think gay people feel... love pretty mean women. Like, let's be honest. Like, that is a core... But I, I mean, like, not to be like the screenwriter of Megan who was like, well, gay people like Megan because Megan is about found family. And it's like, no, we love her because she slays. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, we love her because she does a dance. Like, yeah, no, we yeah. love Megan. We're because easily she's we're, an asshole. we can be like, very easily entertained, and that is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, there, is, I do think that there is something about the way you know the suburbanites in this movie treat Mavis, or like, don't actually think about how she feels or. Th- thinks or you know that don't really give her a chance they make it so easy to reduce her to what she is that i do think gay people can uniquely relate to okay i understand i i i you're right i kind of part of me is like yes i agree and part of me is like it's kind of bad that we that we so 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 readily uh, relate to pretty mean women. <laughs> no, but like when Mary Beth Hurt is just like, oh, well, that's what you are and that's what you do. It's just like, she you know, when that. you're in that room with that one suburban woman you haven't seen in 10 years yeah. and she's just like, well, how is it being a fucking faggot? You know, like that's, uh, you okay. know, when it- here's the difference though. High school Mavis was likely the worst, right? And like, oh, yeah. so it's like some of these people have like, you know, I don't think any of Beth's friends are in any way in the wrong for calling her a psychotic prom queen bitch because she but probably they was. also probably in their way the worst too. Okay. they're teenagers. Of sure. They're the worst. Sure. But there are there's degrees of the worst and there's there's a punching down structure in high school that happens and Mavis was punching sure. down on a lot of people. I don't know. I do not have the level of sympathy I think for Mavis that you do. And that is fine. Um, I think she's a fascinating character that I will watch a movie about her uh, as often as I can. But I have a long leash of sympathy sure. simply because she is that fascinating. Sure, sure, sure. I think we had a similar thing maybe with Margot at the wedding, <laughs> where when we had <laughs> Kyle on, and it was that same kind of thing. It was just sort of like, just like awful, beautiful women. It's just like, yeah, okay, I get it. Uh, we all, uh, you know, on some level would want to have that level of power, but also, oh, the fucking um imdb game tell us about it oh boy the imdb game (laughs) listeners we end 
all of our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Exactly, exactly. Just like... The free-for-all of fast food items you can find at a Kentaco Hut. Uh, Chris, would you like to give or guess first? Uh, one underrated moment that I just yes, thought of. Yes, <laughs> Where she wakes up and immediately grabs, I believe, an open two-liter of soda <laughs> yes. and chugs it. Yep. Um, yep. Wow, relatable queen. And yet, um, a dynamite figure. Like, she eats... <laughs> horrendously and drinks constantly <laughs> and that woman could walk the runway at any point in this movie so yes yeah justice for dolce we have to rescue dolce <laughs> yeah <laughs> save dolce did dolce survive the ride situation? back to minneapolis that is the open question at the end of this movie yeah who yeah. knows um Oh, also, also the genius. There, there is genius level costume design. You talked about yeah. the outfit at the baby naming ceremony. It is, it, it it's genius level. It communicates everything we need to know about Mavis Gary that she is a grown woman in a Hello Kitty uh, t shirt. <laughs> yeah, Mavis Gary in a Hello Kitty t shirt made me entirely reassess my relationship with branded merchandise. <laughs> I'm telling and now you that the... I'm like, I, I am approaching 40. This is no longer for me. I can't wear this. I'm going to look like Mavis Garrett. This movie weaponizes um, branding in a genius way. Like genuinely way. does. Brilliant yes. way. Yeah. Brill- uh, uh, branding and merchandise is for the suburbs. It's bad. <laughs> Right. Get out of it. All right. Um, okay. Sorry. Sorry. The IMDb. Yes. Uh, give her a guess first. Uh, I want to guess first today. Okay. So um, I kept trying to find people related to Jason Reitman or even Karen Kusama and Charlize Theron, and it was all people we had done before. Um, so instead, I'm looking to the future for the mm-hmm. uh, Mad Max Fury Road spinoff slash flashback uh, prequel movie Furiosa. That is starring Anya Taylor-Joy, who we've never done before in the IMDb game, who has one television show and three movies on her IMDb. Wow. Yes. Okay, so um, Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit is the television television show. show. Yes. Um, Three movies, though. Is The Witch on there? It is. Okay, cool. Um, I wonder if it's too soon for the menu. But I feel like it could be on there. There's definitely also things that she's been in that I'm like, I am not watching that shit. Um, like what? I don't know. Things that people like. It, it, it's like the Netflix seriesification, even though she's in a Netflix series I liked, which was The Queen's Gambit. Uh-huh. Of just like people just watch because it's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. This is this is my Mavis Gary moment where I'm yeah. being an asshole. Um I will say the Netflix shows that she has been on are The Queen's Gambit, 11 episodes of Peaky Blinders, and 10 episodes of Dark Crystal Age of Resistance as a voice. I watched that show. Thank you. There you go. Um, Okay. So, uh, hmm. what? 
Well, it's not going to be Amsterdam, which is like, if there's any reason to watch Amsterdam, it's for her, who it's like, she's the closest. She achieves the closest to what that movie is going for. I'm not saying she achieves it wholeheartedly. Sure. Um, uh, fine, I'll say the menu. No, not the menu. Okay. One it's strike. There. Uh, problem is, these are all, uh, years are not going to help me because they're all going to be back to back to back to back to back. What was her other... She did. Did she do another horror movie right after The Witch? Because I feel like there was a small gap, and now she's everywhere. Okay, well, what do I want to guess? Boy, now I'm now I'm in. I, my brain is in the white space where I can't. <laughs> it is all just clear. Yeah. It is television static of trying to remember the actual specific. She's like I, I vaguely know all of the things that she is in, but what is the specific? Oh shit! I am maybe struggling to come up with something recent that she was in because I'm so this is recent is not where my brain is in this game ever. I can start giving hints once you give one more wrong answer. I know, I know. Um fine, I'll just say Amsterdam. Yeah, I would have liked to have done better on this. It's not Amsterdam. You you know what? You're going to not feel bad about doing bad on this when you find out what these other two are. Your years are 2016 and 2020. Okay, so the year that the witch was released in theaters, and what other movie did you say, or what year? Uh, twenty twenty. Oh God! So pandemic year. What was she in in the pandemic? Here's year? all I will say as a hint: is there is a twenty sixteen movie and a twenty twenty movie on her IMDb that she absolutely should that absolutely should be on her known for, and they are not the twenty sixteen and twenty twenty movies that are on her known for. Interesting. Yeah. Ah, what was she? Oh, Emma. Emma's the one that should be on her on her IMDb, okay. and it is not that one. It is a different 2020 movie that I'm going to even look up and find out because it's listed as 2020, but its real release date is lost to the ages. Because honestly, <laughs> it is the like in terms of recent history, it is the movie that did not ever actually happen. No, it was released in the summer of 2020. Okay. Summer of 2020. So, like, when things weren't being released at all, this thing got burned off. Well, theaters weren't open because theaters opened with Tenet. Right. Which was September, right. which was Labor Day weekend. This thing, I swear to God, probably got released in a movie theater that was not actually open <laughs> to the public. A drive-in. Right. Um, like, okay. this thing got kicked out the back doggy door. Like, this thing really got... Oh, is it Cursed? No. Oh, the oh no. The title is it a, with cursed people. It's it's a cursed project. It is like a majorly cursed project. Interesting. It is a majorly cursed, cursed as in like long delayed. Majorly cursed as in people kept trying to make it. That's what I was thinking. All of that long delayed. Okay. Kept trying to make it. It had sat on the shelf for a while. It was part of this, like, it was sort of an offshoot of this major franchise that was supposed to, like, do good things for this franchise. Um, 
it had some like really buzzy cast members, including Anya Taylor Joy, but also another uh, cast member who had just finished a like massively popular and big television show. Um. Oh, so a Game of Thrones person. Uh huh. Yes. You've definitely heard of this. There is no chance in the world that you've seen it. Um, but Oh, it's the New Mutants. It's the New Mutants. Yes. Jesus. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. I remember, like, a year before that movie was actually released, I remember this one clip going semi-viral of her on a red carpet being interviewed for something else, and someone's like, what about New Mutants? And, like, she cringes before she catches herself. Yeah. And she's like, uh, I don't really know <laughs> what's going on there. Um, All right. The 2016 movie. Wow, New Mutants. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yes. The 2016 movie. Okay. So. I'm guessing it's going to be a smaller role. No, I think she's, like, a co-lead. She's one of the top oh, three. Oh, is it Thoroughbreds? No, it's not Thoroughbreds, although that's a pretty okay. good guess. Thoroughbreds was later than 2016. Um, not a good movie. She is the title character. Oh, it's it's a horror movie. It's like Morgan. It is Morgan, in fact. <laughs> it is exactly Morgan. Where she's not a... Real. She's a person created in a lab, right? She's She's... Yeah. Right. It's it's Megan, yeah. but instead of a robot, it's a it's a like a test it's tube. Annie Taylor child. Joy. Yeah. Um, wow. She has multiple movies that are not real. On so the fact that wild. it's New Mutants and Morgan instead of Emma and Split <laughs> is so fucking insane. <laughs> um, but oh god, she's in Split. I hate that movie. But that was a hugely popular movie, and she's the second lead of that movie. Like it's dumb that that's not on her known for. Um, Thoroughbreds, though, could also be on there. Glass, which is the sequel to Split, could be on there. Um, uh, like, there's so many things that could be on there instead of Morgan and New Mutants. Last Night in Soho, which is a bad movie, but, like, it's, it's surprising to me that that's not on there. The Northmen, like... I think at the end of the day, no one gives a fuck about Last Night in Soho is why it's not on there. But it was a much bigger movie than either Morgan or New Mutants. Like, nobody gives a fuck about those movies either. You know what I mean? That's true. Well, I mean, New Mutants, people were searching for I was going to say, I bet you it's like people clicking on that movie. Like, did that movie ever come out? Maybe we need to to issue the Garys on this to keep up with Anna Taylor-Joy's known for, and we'll make an announcement when New Mutants is finally on. When the menu finally replaces new mutants on there yeah 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 totally i bet it'll outlast more um all right um yeah gary's keep an eye on that one for us um all right who do you got for me so for you i also have someone who is going to be very condensed in the times that you're probably (laughs) going to be guessing titles for them okay when you think of their career i went through the charlie's Theron route for her co-stars. We talked briefly about Prometheus, the, I would say, uh, breakout person, though the lead is Numi Rapaz. Uh, I picked for you Michael Fassbender. Oh, we've never done Michael Fassbender. That's why. Uh, speaking of uh, which, he has the Taika Waititi movie, which is like the most long-delayed movie. Talk about Cursed, From too. covid I can't, like, we yeah. think that, you know, it's over for all the movies that were delayed, that were supposed to come no, out in 2020. there's still some. Nope. We yep. still got a Taika Waititi Last, movie. That next goal all, wins. Yep. 
Yeah. Taika Waititi filmed a whole other blockbuster movie and it was released. Yeah. After Listen, this movie was filmed, it takes a and this long. This movie also, uh, uh, you know, if you if you're looking in the backdoor rumor mill, this movie's gonna have some problems, gang. Yeah, um, it takes a long time to go through every frame of footage and excise out by, uh, Army Hammer from your movie. So it's no wonder that this... <laughs> they refilmed it for Army Hammer. Yeah. Did they refilm? Did they recast? Did they? Uh... It's Will Forte now. <gasps> they pulled a, a Christopher Plummer. Amazing. Yes. Yes, I mean this. This is part of the reason why it was so delayed. But fantastic! I don't know, man. All right, uh, especially what after, an odd you know. replacement casting. Who would you normally? Who would you naturally think of to replace Army Hammer? Will I Forte. believe the character that uh, Army Hammer was playing originally is supposed to be some type of like bureaucrat sleazeball. So sure. Will Forte makes sense. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Um, so you got Michael Fassbender for me. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> How many? X-Men's. I'm going to say X-Men First Class. Correct. All right. X-Men First Class does very well in the IMGb. Yes. I'm not going to rule out other X-Men's, although... I'll see. 12 Years a Slave. Incorrect. His Oscar nomination, not I feel like that one shows up for people, too. Um, Okay. Well, we're in an era of uh, doing IMDb games Mm -hmm. where people's Oscar nominations aren't there. Is Prometheus one of them? Correct. Okay. So, X-Men First Class, Prometheus, Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs, correct. That is an Oscar nomination that does show up. It is. Um, He's great in that movie. Okay. Good movie. Great movie. Love that movie. Um, Fix it, Steve. Fix it, Steve. All right. One more. I'm going to say X-Men Days of Future Past. Incorrect. So, your year, if that even helps you, is 2011. Shame. Shame. I was going to guess shame, and I'm like, ah, shame wasn't as popular a with other people. A movie we could do, and we maybe should, do. should at some point, yeah. but it is Bummer Town. It is, but it's a good movie. It's a very yeah. good movie. We so, both love Steve McQueen. It's interesting that that's the Steve McQueen on his IMDb and not 12 Years a Slave. Right? Right. That's interesting. Um, all right. I'm happy with how I did with that. All right. Uh, good episode on a long-awaited topic, Chris. Good episode. We could have gone on for three more hours. It's not the last time we're ever going to talk about this movie. Yeah. One of my favorites, Personal Canon. Yes. Good movie. Uh, Partly because, like, I feel so attached to this movie, not only because I love it and I think there is genius in every minute of this movie, but I felt, I I feel so vindicated every time I see someone they unabashedly love this movie and champion its brilliance, because at the time, people just reduced it to being a mean movie. Yeah. Great movie. All right, that is our episode. If you want more of that side of Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and our Instagram uh, at thisheadoscarbuzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So find a free table at your closest Ken Taco Hut and type out something nice for us. Thank you. That is all for this week, but we hope You'll be back next week for more buzz.